Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Today, in our liturgical calendar, we conclude a threefold theme which began on the Feast of Epiphany. We sing in the antiphon for the Benedictus and morning prayer on that day. Today, the church is joined to her heavenly bridegroom, because in Jordan Christ hath washed away her sins, the wise men with their offerings hasten to the royal marriage, and the guests are regaled with water made wine. Alleluia. The church's poetry on the Feast of Epiphany focused on those three things, the wise men bringing their gifts, the baptism of Christ in the Jordan River, and the miracle of water being turned into wine at the marriage in Cana. On Epiphany, the gospel passage was about the first of those. On the octave of Epiphany, the gospel was about the second of those. And now finally today, on the Sunday after the octave, our gospel passage brings us to the last of them. The question, of course, is what do all of those themes have in common that they would be associated with each other like this? To put it simply, they all reveal something about Christ, which is what the word epiphany essentially means, a revelation. But the mysteries of these revelations go really deep, and the ways that these themes reveal Christ to us are all unique in their own ways. The visit of the Magi showed us that Christ is a king, of course, but also a king not just for the house of Israel, but for the whole world. That's why Gentiles from the East came to acknowledge him as a king. Christ's baptism in the Jordan River revealed his triune divinity. It showed him to be God, but it also revealed that God is three persons because Christ the Son was baptized in the Jordan. The Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, and God the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove to remain on him. So now we come to the last theme, the marriage at Cana and this miracle, the first of his miracles of turning water into wine. What does this tell us about Jesus and who he is? Well, we start with the setting. Jesus was at a wedding. He wasn't officiating, but he came to bless and to honor the marriage of these, his neighbors, with his presence and to be a part of the celebration. Uh, the gospel tells us that he had been invited, we can assume probably because he lived in this general area and was known to the bride and the groom, uh, as was his mother and his disciples who were also there. The setting of a wedding is the first clue about what this reveals to us about Jesus, and that antiphon from the Feast of Epiphany draws it out for us. Today, the church is joined to her heavenly bridegroom. One of the primary images of the relationship we have to Jesus is that we collectively, as the Holy Church, are a bride, and that Christ is our husband. Why is this? Why is this such a strong image throughout the Gospels and throughout the rest of the New Testament and in so much of the poetry of the church. Because intimate union with God is essentially what our existence is about. This is the reality for which we were made. This reality, this deep mystery, as St. Paul says, is of the union of Christ and his church. But the potent symbol of that, woven into our very nature as created human beings, is of marriage between a man and a woman. In Genesis, from the very beginning, we see that we were made as creatures, as man and woman. This is essential to our being. 
our age, our culture, the other characteristics we have, even our race, these are all incidental. These are not crucial or essential to our being, but sex, male and female, that is how we were made. These are essential. And so marriage, when a man leaves his father and mother to be joined with his wife, necessarily involves one man and one woman. We didn't invent this. God invented this for us. He invented us to be joined in that special complementarity that the unique differences between man and woman only can produce. And these differences, essential in going all the way down into our beings as males and females, mirrors something essential in the difference between Christ and his church, the complementarity between Christ and his church. Christ, in his masculinity, manifests his many, uh, his pursuit in, of his bride by leaving his father, that is by emptying himself, coming down from heaven, taking on our nature, that's how he leaves his father, and his mother. How does he leave his mother? When he ascends the cross and commits her to the care of John, his disciple. He has now left his father in heaven and his mother below him on the earth to be joined on the cross with his bride, the church. He presents himself naked on his marriage day, open, vulnerable, completely present to his church, demonstrating his intense love and strength through his voluntary weakness. He loves his bride enough to die for her, and that is the true image of masculinity. Love all the way to death. Strength manifested in willing weakness. And the church, we, in true femininity, we receive that love, commit ourselves to Christ, follow him in obedience, and open ourselves in intimate receptivity to be impregnated by his very life inside us, giving birth to virtue. The intimate, fiery love and union between Christ and his church is the reality to which human marriage is a mirror, a sacrament. And knowing this reality, thinking about this role, the bridegroom into what he was being called, Christ comes to this wedding feast. And with this mission, this destiny in his heart, and perhaps on his mind at that moment, when his, when his mother approaches him at this party, uh, we see this exchange recorded in John's gospel. She comes to him and presents him with a problem. She says, they have run out of wine. And the answer that Jesus gives his mother is one that has disturbed and confounded the church for a while. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? What in the world do I have to do with you? So <laughs> is Jesus um, rejecting his mother, rejecting, just telling her to go away? Is, is he rebuking her in some way? Well, clearly he's not saying, oh, okay, let me fix this right away. Clearly he is giving her pause because when she approaches him, he, knowing his mother well, sees in her eyes, sees on her face what she's concerned about. And she comes to him to solve this problem. The question is, why would she come to him to solve this problem if this was the first miracle that he had ever done? If he had never done another miracle, why is his mother approaching him now, expecting something from him? What's he supposed to do? Well, she knew the kind of birth that he had. 
She knew the miraculous birth that she gave to this child, a son of God, her son without a father. She knew the glories of angels singing to shepherds and advertising this birth to them. She knew the wonders of magi from the Far East following a star in the heavens that indicated he had been born. She knew the wonder of finding him after three days sitting in the temple of God and teaching the elders and the teachers of the law. And now at age 30, after these quiet, miraculous miracles, all of which the scripture says Mary treasured in her heart, she had been treasuring all this and waiting for something. Finally, what's happening? Jesus is going into the river and being baptized with the voice of the Father, proclaiming him to be the Son. He's gathering disciples around him. He's beginning his ministry. She knows this is what he came for, or at least she thinks this is what he came for. In her mind, like almost every good faithful Jew, what was the Messiah supposed to do? He was supposed to gather his people to him, build up the house of Israel, establish freedom for them uh, against the tyranny of the kings of the world. He was supposed to rescue them from all of their troubles. This is what she was expecting. And she knew that Jesus, her son, was that person. And here he was, finally, manifesting his glory, finally. So she comes to him, expecting this is probably the time. So when he says to her, what have I to do with you? What he's saying is, what does my mindset have to do with your mindset? When he says, my hour has not yet come, clearly he's not talking about the hour for his first miracle, because that has come. He does it, doesn't he? He's not saying, what have I to do with you, as in you're asking me to do something that isn't in my nature or a part of my character, because it is. He does it, doesn't he? What he's saying when he says, what have I to do with you? My hour hasn't come. He is telling her, his mother, in a gentle way, rebuking her mindset, her idea of what he as Messiah was supposed to be doing. His hour as the bridegroom had not yet come. He, attending a wedding, blessing and sanctifying a human marriage, has on his heart what he knows he as the bridegroom of the church is supposed to be doing. His death in Jerusalem, his ascending a throne between two thieves, that's the marriage that is on his heart. That is what his hour is, and that had not yet come, and she didn't know what he was about yet. But even after telling her, what you're thinking is not what I'm thinking, my hour for that hasn't come, he tells her in such a way, with his eyes and his face, and his love and care as a good son, caring for his mother, that with his response, she yet realizes, okay, he is doing what he's being called to do, and I am learning in my faith. This was that he, she had faith in him, but not pointed in quite the right direction. This was, as George McDonald said about this instance, a faith of hers that had to die in order to grow. She had to learn. She had to be corrected in her trajectory, in her course of her faith. She had to see what he was about. She had to become what he was about. What have I to do with thee? Well, it's not 
him that's going to change. It's her that has to change. So after learning this lesson, she yet has faith in her son to do what's good and right and honorable and true. And the way that he looks at her in this response lets her know, okay, action is still forthcoming. So whatever it is that he is about to do, that's what his nature is about. So she turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. I love this communication between uh, son and mother. There, there are words spoken, but there is unspoken messages too. Mary, a pro at treasuring things in her heart, is able to learn from her son just from these, these words, this soft rebuke, this change of direction. And she changes, doesn't she? She learns what this is about. She learns that I don't come to you unless others have come to you. This is, this is a pattern that Jesus will establish throughout the rest of his miracles. This is the only miracle that we see in the Gospels where Jesus does something not because a need has been presented to him directly from those in need. His mother comes to, her, or comes to him to present a need from someone else. Every other miracle, Jesus encounters the people themselves who are in need of help or something. And so this is a pattern, a trajectory that Mary learns from here on out. This is how it's going to be done. So Jesus, after the soft rebuke, tells the servants, go and fill up these water pots. They do it. And he says, now draw some out and take it to the, uh, take it to the master of the feast. They do, and he drinks it and discovers this is some awesome wine. He goes to the groom and he says, you know, I... I do this a lot. I'm, I'm a master of parties. It's my job. And uh, in all my experience, everyone has the best wine at the beginning of the party. And then when everyone's uh, feeling pretty good, a little tipsy, then they bring out the, the other stuff that's uh, not quite so good, not as expensive. But you have saved the best until last. Presumably, the groom has no idea what he's talking about. Thanks. Okay. The only people... St. John tells us that knew what was going on were the servants who had filled up the water, his mother, and his disciples who had been with him. He says, in this, Jesus manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed in him. It was they who learned this lesson. No one else at the party. This was a hidden miracle. It's still part of the church's celebration of the you know, revelation of God. This is, it's now no longer hidden. It's written in the gospel. So we can celebrate it. We learn from it. But at the time, this was for the sake of his disciples. So what is the meaning of this miracle? Why is the first thing that Jesus ever did in this world to show us what he was capable of was turning water into wine? St. Augustine tells us that this isn't out of the character of God. This isn't some arbitrary thing, changing water into wine. There are other people who would... Uh, come and, and claim to be miracle workers or important people sent from God, and they would perform wonders or works or magic tricks or something. And a lot of times you see, even in fairy stories of, of, about, you know, wizards and other things, changing, I don't know, rocks into frogs or, you know, changing one thing into something else. And it has nothing to do with each other. But water and wine is something that is already a part of the natural good world that God made. Augustine lets us know that 
in this moment, in this instance, Jesus does something quickly that is already something God is doing in the world already through nature. He says we wonder at it because in this miracle it happens before our eyes. But what we don't realize is it's still a wonder that water from the earth comes and seeps into the ground and fills up grapes, which themselves already have the property of fermenting and becoming wine. What a wonder that is. But we miss it because we're so used to it. Why is it such a wonder when God does it here and now in this specific instance, in an instant, but we forget how wonderful it is that God created water and grapes in the first place. He created the world, the heavens, and all that therein is. So this is, in a sense, kind of like Christ's multiplication of the bread. And also, interestingly, there are only two instances in the gospel where Christ multiplies something, where he creates a lot of something out of something else. And this was changing water into wine, giving us wine, and multiplying bread, giving us bread. Wine and bread. It's all through the Gospels, and it's all in our church. So the point of this is Christ is showing us that he is not some miracle worker detached from the reality of God the Creator, but he is God the Creator in the flesh before our eyes. He's the same God who created water and grapes and wine in the first place. So, St. Augustine, remarking on this, says, For who is there that considers the works of God, whereby the whole world is governed and regulated, who is amazed and overwhelmed with miracles, if he considers the vigorous power of a single grain of any seed whatsoever? It's a mighty thing. It inspires him with awe. But since men, intent on a different matter, have lost the consideration of the works of God by which they should daily praise him as the creator, God has, as it were, Reserve to him the doing of certain extraordinary actions that by striking them with wonder, he might rouse men from sleep to worship him. A dead man has risen again, and we marvel. But so many are born daily, and no one marvels. If we reflect more considerately, it's a matter of greater wonder for one to be who was not before than for one who was to come to life again. In other words, new life is actually more extraordinary than raising some from the dead. Yet the same God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, does by his words all these things, and it is he who created that governs also. So that's part of what this miracle means. Christ is revealing himself to be one and the same God as his Father and the creator of all things. But then there's something else mystically about the changing of water into wine that shows us who Christ is in the narrative of salvation history, of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, how he fits within all of this history and what his presence in the world now means. Water is, wine is latent in the water, but needs Christ to bring them out. And St. Augustine and others say that this is the same sense that the Old Testament has for us. It's water. It's good, and it's ready to be changed into something better. But until Christ comes, until Christ is revealed in the Old Testament, it's tasteless and maybe sustaining for a while, but not wonderful. Now with Christ coming, the Old Testament is changed from something tasteless, like water, into something gorgeous, tasteful, 
even inebriating, like wine. The Old Testament before might have sustained us to a point, but now, full of Christ, it delights us and it lifts us. It lifts our hearts. It lifts our spirits. St. Faustus of Riez, the Bishop of Riez, said, The law gave way and grace succeeded. The shadow is removed and the truth is demonstrated. The fleshly things are compared with the spiritual. The ancient observances are changed to the New Testament. As the blessed apostle says, old things have passed away and behold, the new, behold, they are now made new. And just as the waters which are contained in those pitchers lose nothing of their being and now begin to be what they were not. So the law does not perish when made manifest through the coming of Christ, but it flourishes. And so Christ demonstrates through this miracle something about him. He brings new characteristics, better characteristics to what was already there. This is a symbol for us of the old law versus what Christ brings in the new law. So what do we have this day that teaches us about Christ? We see the characteristics of marriage and how it's based on the union of Christ with the church, with God, with humanity. We see Christ is that bridegroom. We see that he is the same God as the creator of all the world. His miracles are concordant with, harmonious with, consonant with all the miracles of creation already. We also see that he brings new life, new characteristics, better, more tasteful, and lifting characteristics to what was already there. He as he tells his disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, in all that was behind you that you didn't realize was about me, and I will show you where I am in it. And all of a sudden it becomes new for you. All that law is now life. I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I come not to get rid of the water, but to turn it into wine. This is the characteristic of the good and loving Christ. The kind of Christ, kind of son, who gently rebukes his mother, not to make her feel bad, but to show her the truth. And he does the same thing with us. He does not condemn us. Just like the, the woman caught in adultery, he, he dismisses everyone and says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone, and they all disperse. And then what does he tell her? Does anyone condemn you? Neither do I. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, I don't chastise or uh, send you away as unworthy. You are worthy if you follow me. That's what he does with his mother. He doesn't send her away. He just corrects her trajectory, corrects her course. That's why we're here. We show up not because we worship a God who is vindictive or mean or arbitrary or a rule setter and a punisher. We worship a God who came to earth to save us, who climbed on a cross to save us, who emptied himself, who stripped himself to give himself to us. That is our groom. That's our husband. That's who wants to unite himself to us, showing his strength that we can trust in and follow through his weakness. That's the God we worship. And all of that is made manifest through this, his first miracle at the marriage in Cana. So, that together with the triune revelation of God in the baptism and the realization that this fulfiller of the Old Testament of the Hebrews is also the king for the entire world, 
This is what epiphany is for us. It's glorious. That's why it's such a big deal in the church. It's why the poetry just revels in these three instances of the revelation of God. So I hope our hearts can revel in that too, that we will give due consideration to all of these instances of God's epiphany to the world and to us so that our hearts, like Mary's, are changed in their trajectory so that we learn more about the nature and character of the God who came to save us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.